Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's where you come in. Obviously, it is your questions that determine the content of each and every uh, edition of this Bible question and answer broadcast. So we're looking forward to hearing from you through whatever avenue uh, you use to get your questions to us. Uh, Remember, we don't sit down and try to decide before the broadcast what we think you need to hear about. We want to hear from you and uh, help you to hear uh, more clearly from God's inspired word. Maybe you've got a question about a particular passage in the Bible that has, uh, well, maybe raised more questions than has given you answers. Maybe you'd like to learn how to apply the truths we find in the Word of God to the challenges you're currently facing in life. A tough question lodged your way by a skeptic or a non-believer. Maybe even a tough question you've always had, even as a believer in Christ, but uh, you've never found a place where you could get that question answered in as non-threatening an environment as we'd like to provide. Uh, Feel free to get those questions to us. Uh, The events of the day, even the events of tomorrow, a bit of a prophecy update for you as the broadcast gets unfolded today, but uh, we'll uh, uh, let uh, that uh, happen as the broadcast unfolds uh, for you. Uh, But wherever we go, we want to go exactly where the Lord wants us to go. Uh, And uh, so I guess the best way to facilitate that is uh, to open up with a word of prayer and commit the broadcast to the Lord. Would you like to pray for us? I'd love to. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. We know that's a privilege and one we don't take lightly. Allow your people to be ministered to exactly as you intend. Equip my Father with not only your words and wisdom, but with your heart and touch as well, that the people here would not only be given ears to hear, but us hearts to relate it properly. Allow this word to first bear fruit in our own lives as we have the chance to receive it personally but as you seek to minister to your body and perhaps those who don't yet know you that you would set out to do exactly what you intend this day whether it's in our local fellowship in this outreach that you've given us the privilege to be a part of or anything in between we're just grateful for your word and your spirit we ask this all to be done for your glory in jesus name amen amen all right so Prophecy update. What is needing updates? Well, a few things going on. As we said, we were going to be keeping uh, track on a number of different issues uh, that uh, surround uh, what's going on in the Middle East. A very interesting article today in the Jerusalem Post. Uh, Israel is saying that Iran now has nearly enough uranium for a bomb as the talks on the Iranian nuclear program uh, continue to be stuck. Uh, There is a... uh, theory out there that uh, the Iranians are playing both sides against the middle if they can uh, continue to up the ante as far as concessions they are trying to uh, make from uh, the Western nations they are entering into this agreement with, uh, then uh, so much the better. Among some of the uh, demands they have made is that the Iranian Republican Guard Corps would uh, be removed from a list of uh, terrorist uh, uh, organizations and would no longer be subject to uh, financial and diplomatic sanctions. 
Well, that's kind of a tough thing to do since the Iranian Republican Guard Corps has been uh, basically having their fingerprints almost over uh, most, if uh, not all, of the uh, terrorist attacks that we see going on, particularly around the Middle East. Uh, so, you know, they're not really, I don't believe, expecting uh, the uh, P5 plus one uh, nations that they're entering into this agreement with to uh, really concede all of this. But the more they delay, the more they have the opportunity to be able to enrich the uranium that they already have. Uh, the article in the Jerusalem Post indicates that uh, they have a large amount of uranium, certainly enough for a bomb. Uh, that is enriched to 60%. Uh, and there's, I guess, two ways you can get to that threshold where you can use enriched uranium for a bomb. You can either get it to 90% enrichment with a smaller quantity, or you can have a larger quantity of uranium at 60% and uh, still be able to uh, achieve uh, a uh, nuclear explosion with that particular uh, uh, venue. So um, the the fact of the matter is uh, the negotiations have come to a screeching halt. Uh, there have been a number of uh, opportunities and uh, uh, over uh, uh, cheers to get these uh, talks back online. doesn't appear to be the case, but uh, it's one of those things where uh, it's kind of like heads, uh, I win, tails, uh, you lose, as far as the Iranians are concerned. They do appear to be pursuing their nuclear ambitions uh, with all uh, due pace. Uh, how does that affect us? Well, you know, one of the questions uh, that gets asked is um, uh, of us on the broadcast is people will hear that in Iran every Friday they have a rally outside of the government headquarters. Uh, where they uh, spend a couple of hours shouting death to the great Satan and death to the little Satan. Uh, the little Satan, believe it or not, is Israel. Most people would think that would be the great Satan in the Iranians' uh, extreme Muslim minds. But the great Satan, for a number of uh, historical and political reasons, is the United States. Well, uh, the current head of the Iranian Republican Guard commander uh, Command uh, definitely holds that position. In fact, in another article in the Jerusalem Post, uh, they uh, report uh, a, a number of uh, remarks being made uh, by the new commander of uh, the uh, Iranian Republican Guard units, Mohammed Pakpur is his name. Uh, he uh, was quoted as saying in an interview that the killing of all American leaders would not be enough to avenge the death of Iranian military commander General Qasim Soleimani. Uh, and uh, Soleimani, as you know, was killed in 2020 by the U.S. military while on a visit to Iraq. Uh, Soleimani was a brilliant uh, military strategist and uh, was uh, given great credit for Iran's effectiveness in spreading terrorism throughout the Middle East. And so his uh, coming down because of his uh, wide-ranging contacts and his expertise in these matters uh, struck a real blow to the Iranians' uh, designs to uh, take over more and more of uh, the region and exercise more and more of their influence. Well, after uh, Soleimani was uh, killed, Iran vowed a crushing revenge on all those responsible. And uh, Mohammad Pakpour said this, if all American leaders are killed, this will still not avenge the blood of Soleimani. We have to follow Soleimani's path and avenge him through other methods. Uh, again, this, uh, these comments came as Iran and uh, world powers uh, are trying to resolve uh, the Iran nuclear deal talks 
in Vienna. Uh, no luck in doing that uh, so far. So uh, one of the unresolved issues that the Iranians are pushing, obviously, is that Washington would remove the Revolutionary Guards from the U.S. Foreign Terrorist Organization list as demanded by Tehran in order for the deal or even negotiations on the deal to be revived. Uh, it uh, did appear that our administration was moving in that direction, but there is such resistance to that, uh, particularly in both houses of Congress, they backed off on the deal. So uh, Iran will continue to do what they've been doing, that is to continue their uh, nuclear development uh, in as uh, secret and, uh, secretive a way as they possibly can. Uh, Israel, uh, for their part, is not going to take this sitting down. Uh, we do hear reports of uh, various uh, explosions taking place within Iran, one even uh, earlier this week that wasn't really recorded very much in the press, but uh, did significant damage to one of the port cities uh, that serviced the area around Iran's nuclear uh, uh, reactors and their nuclear facilities. So it does appear that uh, war by any other means is still going on there. Uh, we need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. We do know that Iran will play a part in the last days. They are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38 as being part of an invading force that will come into Israel uh, that is going to be led by Russia itself. Now, we take the position that this isn't going to happen until the tribulation period because uh, after Russia defeats this invading force, I should say after God defeats this invading force, uh, Israel is going to know that the Lord's God and never walk away from them again. At the beginning of the tribulation, however, Israel is going to make a covenant with death according to Isaiah chapter 28 and Daniel chapter 9. So uh, we do believe that this particular incident is going to take place later on be beyond that particular point. So keep your eyes in the Middle East and keep praying for the peace of Jerusalem. All right. Going out to your questions, uh, we're clarifying one as we speak, but uh, as that is being, uh, I guess, hammered out, we start with a question from Nina, which is asking, was Ecclesiastes written by Solomon or someone else? Some say Solomon did not turn from his sins in First Kings, and that Ecclesiastes was written by someone else known as the preacher. Uh, well, Nina, it's a good question because when you read the first verse of the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, he introduces himself as the preacher, and of Co course... Koheleth yeah. in uh, Hebrew, yeah. And of course, we don't have a near equivalent, so we have to ask a few questions. Who would go by that title? What time frame was this written in? And why was it treated as such, this uh, profound wisdom literature? And who else could have fit the bill? Uh, if we pull a Sherlock Holmes and deal in terms of alternatives, it narrows it down for us. We don't even necessarily have to do that. As far as the information that's available to us to test the content of Ecclesiastes, first understand uh, the word Ecclesiastes is significant. We'll get to that as far as the title, but also noting the perspective. Uh, one quick thing before we go into the history of the authorship, the side comment in noting that Solomon did not turn from his sins in First Kings and therefore uh, he wasn't the writer of Ecclesiastes because in chapter 12, I believe, it notes that this is the end of all man to honor God and obey his commandments. Right. So obviously there's a good uh, perspective check there. Yeah. Yeah. So if the assumption is, of course, that Solomon didn't turn from his ways, which we don't read in First Kings or Second Kings for that matter, and we assume that into Ecclesiastes, then we discount 
Solomon as the author. But what is the positive information we have that Solomon wrote this before we make assumptions that he didn't repent? Yeah, uh, I, when I was in seminary, I was asked to do a uh, term paper uh, on the authorship of uh, Ecclesiastes and got into the whole deal about uh, Koheleth and the preacher and why does he refer to himself as the preacher and so on. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is uh, the, uh, the, the, the golden word in this discussion seems to be the word assumption. Uh, one would assume that uh, since there didn't seem to be any turning from uh, Solomon's wicked ways, or at least explicitly mentioned, that uh, the end of Ecclesiastes, which does speak about uh, this uh, preacher coming to his senses, uh, wouldn't fit the bill. Well, the argument becomes kind of weak in my mind. We take a look at how many clues we are given in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon was, in fact, the author. For instance, uh, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, verses 12 and 16, uh, the author identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, the most direct son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, was no less an individual than Solomon himself. Uh, the author says that he had more wisdom than all who were before him. Again, in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12, we see the famous prayer request that Solomon made of God, that uh, instead of asking for wealth or deliverance from his enemies, uh, that God would give him wisdom and understanding to judge his people. And so God was pleased with that and said, I will not only uh, answer your prayer and give you everything else that you asked for, but uh, your wisdom is going to exceed all those who have gone before you. Uh, there's only one person in Scripture that fits that description. Uh, he gathered about himself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings. First Kings chapter 10 uh, speaks of silver and gold being more common in Jerusalem in Solomon's reign than, than dust or rocks itself. Uh, again, uh, engaged in extensive building projects, uh, we are told, uh, again, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. First uh, Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, tell us that that's exactly what Solomon did. And uh, finally, uh, we see that uh, he developed a great understanding of plants and animals and natural phenomena. In uh, chapter 7 and verse 20, uh, we are told that this was something that the author studied. And uh, in the book of 1 Kings, again in chapter 8 and verse 46, uh, we are told that this happened. But the kicker for me is uh, we are told that he also pondered and set in order many Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And verse 9, we know of no other king of Israel, aside from a mention of Augur in the Proverbs, that was used to compose Proverbs like Solomon did. So the uh, overwhelming uh, uh, evidence does seem to point to the fact that uh, Solomon was, in fact, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes. As far as uh, him turning back to God, you got to remember that this turning back to God happens at the very, very end uh, of the book. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 seems to strike a better note where it says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. Uh, again, uh, he goes on, Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pottered and sought out and said in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. 
And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. That was my uh, life verse when I was in seminary, by the way. And then finally, it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring in every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So uh, Solomon, I believe the writer here, is saying, well, I'm writing this, see, because I never made any mistakes. Or I'm writing this because, uh, you know, I'm stuck in my sin, and maybe this will help you somewhere down the line. You know, when we take a look at the careers of some of the wicked kings of Israel, particularly a guy named Manasseh, uh, we discover that he started out on a really horrible note, reigned for over 55 years, and finally, when the Assyrians came and dragged him off into captivity with an a iron hook in his nose, try to imagine that, uh, while he had time to think about his spiritual condition in an Assyrian prison, uh, he came to his senses and turned back to the Lord, and the Lord received him. So no reason why Solomon couldn't be the author here. And the overwhelming verdict, not of, only of tradition, but the internal evidence of the book itself, as well as other scriptures, backs that conclusion. So let us know if that helps you out, Nina. And again, just to clarify, internal evidence, the same topics that Ecclesiastes cover are the same topics Solomon is in scripture specializing in, distinct right. from any other king of Israel. Right. We note that during the time that this book was quote-unquote canonized, it was recognized by the Jewish authorities as scripture, and at the time this was recognized, only two fit that bill, Joel and Solomon, so that also narrows it down. And of course, if we're going to take a step back and make uh, basically examine our assumptions. To say that someone had committed so many sins that they're beyond saving isn't consistent biblically. Manasseh outpaced every king's wickedness, and he was still uh, According savable. to tradition, he sawed uh, Isaiah in half. Yeah, among other things. So, he yeah. offered his children on brass altars. Yeah. But note that point. Uh, the assumptions are faulty and inconsistent. The internal evidence is consistent with what we know about Solomon in Scripture, and of course, the uh, people at this time were able to recognize it as from Scripture, and due to the time it was dated, it fits the bill being Solomon. Otherwise, I think Joel would have at least signed his name. Uh, with that being said, uh, here's another question, a great one, speaking of uh, biblical history, from Yari, who wants to know, who was King, uh, king Lemuel? Was he a Gentile or a king of Israel? He's not mentioned in Kings or Chronicles. Thank you. Yeah, that's the kicker, Yari, because we don't have a record of him. Uh, as far as his contribution to the book of Proverbs, we'll do the same thing we did with Solomon and go with what we can work with. In Proverbs 31, it says the words of king, okay, check that off. He was right. a king of where we aren't told. Lemuel, that was his name, the utterance which his mother taught him. So this is not just his wisdom, but he loves his mama enough to listen to her too. Yeah. So he was also born. He had a mother. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of the kicker there because the name Lemuel literally means devoted to God. And uh, there are those who will say that Lemuel was a pet name, if you will, that Solomon had uh, and shared with his mother. And that's uh, a and, possibility. And uh, an individual that we meet in the scriptures whose name was... Bathsheba, yeah. So referencing uh, his mother, <laughs> yeah. So Bathsheba, as you know, kind of gets the the bad rap for being a part of the affair with David and so on. But uh, Bathsheba came from a pretty well versed background uh, scripturally. Do you remember who Bathsheba's grandfather was? Uh, I don't remember. I know his name starts with an A. But, a fellow uh, by the name of Ahithophel, yeah. who was considered King David's most wise counselor. 
And uh, this guy was so torqued over what happened uh, with this affair and the dispatching of Uriah the Hittite, his grandson-in-law, that he turned on David and uh, decided to uh, follow along with Absalom and his rebellion. But with all that... If he had listened to Ahithophel's advice, he would have successfully uh, killed David in his coup. But fortunately, David had help on the inside as well. So this fellow, Ahithophel, was an incredibly wise man, a man well-versed in the scriptures, is very... Uh, likely that Bathsheba was as well uh, and was able to pass along that uh, generational wisdom, if you will, to Solomon as he was growing up. But as far as what we can know for certain about him, again, his name is Hebraic in reference to the Jewish God, but we don't have a record of him, as you said, Yari, in Kings or Chronicles, so we can't say dogmatically. Second, uh, we do know that he was in the position of a kingship. That would either mean that he is in association with the one king we do know about in Proverbs, that is Solomon, Agur as well, but we'll get into that more if you would like to ask. The point of emphasis, though, being what we do know and what we can't know is the difference between what we can test and what we shouldn't test or come to conclusions off of. So who was Lemuel? Well, Uh, Given the association, there are some who have theories, but in the Proverbs itself, the individuals who tested it said it passed its spiritual muster. So we note the substance of what he has to say. Right. If the proverb, Proverbs 31 in this case specifically, doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture, then by all means throw it out. The problem is it's been there quite comfortably for the last 30 uh, or 3,000 years. Yeah, and the other thing that I would just uh, throw out with all of this is uh, we might not know who Lemuel is, uh, whether that was a pet name. Uh, some people think that it might have been a reference to King Hezekiah, who was also a good king. You know, we don't know. Uh, but we do know that uh, the uh, wisdom that we find that, uh, that was shared with Lemuel uh, is very solid and very consistent with the rest of what uh, Scripture had to say. Uh, and uh, really, knowing who Lemuel is, I tend to think it might have been a pet name for Solomon. That would, yeah, that would be my leaning. But uh, even if it's not, it doesn't change the understanding of the content and, at all. Um, it's worth mentioning for the sake of those listening as well. You mentioned a possibility it was an association with Hezekiah. Uh, why would his name be brought up in Proverbs? Well, uh, a, uh, for the reason that uh, Hezekiah was uh, one of the uh, good kings of Israel. Yeah, and also note that a good section of the last third of the book of Proverbs was compiled when he started reinstituting the worship of the true living God in his time and in his day. He was coming after a uh, long streak of bad kings in Israel. So that's why uh, some theorize that it was Hezekiah, but again, it's more likely Solomon. And there's another theory that just says it's Solomon uh, using the name Lemuel as a uh, literary device to portray the ideal relationship between a mother and a uh, king growing up. All right. Um, real quick as well, while we're on the topic, uh, Philip wants to know, uh, was Bathsheba's, uh, pun intended, bathing in front of David of uh, act of, uh, I guess, lower pew on her part, or was it entirely on David? Well, there was, again, you have to understand a little bit about the um, architecture of ancient Israel during that time. You know, it's funny, uh, a number of uh, my uh, relatives on uh, my mom's side lived here in Arizona back uh, in the days before air conditioning. 
And uh, boy, I'll tell you, when I hear uh, about them settling here and where they settled, uh, I just thought to myself, man, why don't you just keep uh, rolling on to San Diego or someplace like that? Because uh, it's, it was uh, incredibly hot. Well, those days, biblical days, there was no air conditioning. And so if you would go to Jerusalem, in fact, you even go there now, you see quite a bit of this. People tended to build their houses with flat roofs, kind of the Santa Fe style housing we see uh, around here in Tucson. And that was for a reason, because at the end of the day, you could go up on the roof and take advantage of any kind of prevailing breeze that would be coming by that would cool things down uh, during that time. Now, we know that uh, the incident with uh, Bathsheba and David happened during the spring when the kings go out to war. Uh, Well, as you know, around here in Tucson, spring can be a time where the temperature can uh, accelerate pretty quickly and then go back down and so forth. And so the idea of someone bathing on the top of their roof uh, would not be an uncommon thing to have happen uh, because David's palace was situated in the city of David at the top of the city of David. It would have a commanding view of the rest of the places down below uh, because it did. Uh, then obviously it gave David the opportunity to be able to see Bathsheba uh, bathing at that particular place. But and to, in ways and, that the other neighbors wouldn't have because that was essentially their front porch yeah. equivalent or backyard. There were walls, but someone looking down would be able to see them. Right. We can't attribute motive to Bathsheba exactly. in the text. Yeah. We can't attribute motive and action to, to David. David. There's no doubt about that one. But yeah. make sure that we aren't the ones to point the finger and say, uh, well, if she had been wearing her hijab, then uh, this wouldn't have uh, happened. Well, no. No, it was what was in the man's heart, not what was or wasn't was on the woman's body. When it comes to the text, just stick to the text. Uh, There's always room for fun illustrations, but make sure it fits the data. All we're told is that David was the one who lusted. Bathsheba wasn't looking for that attention. She wasn't in a place historically where she would have been seeking that attention, and it wasn't unheard of for people to bathe in this manner. It was David who did the deed, so make sure that any blame or even any humor done is directed at him. You know, and it's very interesting that when Nathan the prophet uh, kind of uh, brought everything into the light after a year's uh, worth of cover-up, Bathsheba is not brought in and addressed in any way, shape, or form. Uh, It may be that uh, Bathsheba was in a position like, well, I can't refuse the king. The king asked you to do something. You you just have to do it. That that is a possibility there. Whether she uh, went willingly or not, we don't know. She certainly stuck to the marriage uh, after the death of uh, Uriah the Hittite and after David was exposed. So, you know, we really aren't uh, told maybe all of the, uh, as you say, the attributive motives that are going on there. But uh, we do know that uh, even though David was severely chastised, uh, God's grace covered it. So, All right. A uh, question from Neil Falls, who wants to know, in Proverbs 13.20, I'll read the passage, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Uh, he wants to know, can the word fool apply to children? Um, anybody who does foolish things, Uh, young, old, uh, I guess strong, weak, uh, rich or poor, foolishness is a mindset and attitude. But the good news is we usually associate it with children because it gets it out of the way before the consequences become more, I guess, impactful as they're older and stronger. The assumption, though, isn't that children are foolish and that old men are wise. The 
problem is when we recognize foolishness and recognize wisdom, it's based on what they do and how they view the world. And in this proverb, it's noting your input matters and your company. Uh, this can be cross-referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul, speaking of those who were literally false teachers, trying to deny the concept of the physical resurrection. He calls them to task by saying, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. Right. So building on this point then, it's obviously possible for children to be smart and make the kind of people in their lives the ones they look up to and would want to be more like. And there could also be people that they admire that aren't worth looking up to, but they do anyway. If a child does this, that's foolish. If an adult does this, it's foolish. We yeah. Make sure that we don't uh, get into the ages and things. Yeah, uh, Proverbs 22 and verse 15 does say uh, that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. The context of that does seem to be uh, inexperience or the uh, lack of uh, discernment that comes from, uh, well, going through the school of hard knocks and such, which seems to be the point of the proverb. Uh, so can children be foolish? Certainly they can be. It's like the uh, child that continually runs into the street without looking. A parent will probably go out of their way to make sure that they learn that lesson uh, because uh, learning by experience in that set of circumstances would be absolutely devastating. I mean, be hit by a car. Uh, so that's where uh, the rod of correction would drive it out of that child. So uh, yeah, children uh, like us, can be very foolish. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, whenever people talk about the innocence and purity of children, uh, I always kind of think, wow, here's a person who's never been a parent or has lived through the terrible twos. If you doubt that we all have a fallen, sinful human nature, uh, you've obviously never gone through that phase of things. You don't have to teach a child to do foolish things like lie or cheat or steal. Uh, they seem to be kind of custom designed to do those things all by themselves. You do have to teach a child not to steal, not to uh, lie, not to do foolish things. So uh, that seems to be the uh, the emphasis in Scripture. All right. Uh, question from uh, Mike who wants to know, does the Bible clearly point out the day? I assume the day of the week. That's usually how skeptics phrase this, but yeah. we'll, we'll clarify that too, uh, that Jesus was crucified. I've heard different Calvary pastors mention it was on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Thank you. Yeah, like the reason why they would take those different positions, uh, usually Thursday-ish, is because the three days and the three nights that Jesus would spend in the heart of the earth, if that leads to Sunday morning, then they basically mince meet the text and say, and I'm not saying the pastors do, the skeptics do, uh, to say that, oh, well, this is only possible But you, uh, if Jesus was crucified on a Thursday or Wednesday, but you Christians say Good Friday. Therefore, since we assume Christians can never get the dates wrong, and the Bible, of course, says everything that people believe, like, you know, Jesus being born on December 25th, it doesn't, then we can accuse you on something the Bible doesn't even say. Well, all that is well and good. What we do know from the text are three key historical details. First, Jesus was crucified during Passover. Was that one day or was that a week? Yeah, well, again, it was a week. In fact, uh, Passover uh, was shorthand, not only for Passover, but for a seven-day feast that would follow it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right. Uh, you know, it's interesting that in the Gospel of John, chapter 19 and verse 14, this is kind of the bone of contention. It says uh, that Jesus died on the day of the preparation of the Passover. And so um, some really solid people, Calvary-associated people, uh, 
especially uh, our uh, our dear late friend uh, Chuck Missler, uh, would put forth the theory that I mean he bought, um, put forth the theory that Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday, and that there were two Sabbaths that took place during that week. Mm-hmm. One would be the Sabbath of preparation for the Passover. Uh, in other words, the Passover itself that day would be considered a Sabbath uh, by the Jewish people. And then there would be another one from Friday to Saturday. And so if you put those two things together, you come up with the uh, 72 hours that Jesus uh, would have to be uh, in the tomb to fulfill the prophecy that he made in uh, Matthew chapter 12, which is uh, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Probably uh, the easiest way to resolve this, Mike, at least I'll, I'll, I'll throw out my two cents worth, Sean, you can throw out your two cents worth and, you know, knock yourselves out. You know, when uh, John made the statement, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. Uh, the, the preparation of the Passover uh, is never used, the idea of the preparation for the Sabbath, it's never used in, in, uh, in a way that speaks of uh, a day of preparation for that particular feast. In other words, the, the double Sabbath idea there. Uh, when it talks about the day of the preparation for the Sabbath, it always referred to uh, the time that would lead into sundown on Friday when the Jewish Sabbath uh, would begin in Mark chapter 15. Uh, and verse uh, 42, we're told when evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. That is one of the reasons that we tend to uh, say that Jesus died on Good Friday because it was the day of the preparation before uh, the Sabbath where that was going on. Uh, you know, it is possible to take John's words in John 19 and verse 14. It, it was the day of preparation, the one that happened to come during the season of the Passover. So again, since Passover was kind of an elastic term, a catch-all that would not only refer to the actual Passover Seder meal that would be happening on that time, but the things associated with the Passover, including the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would follow it, uh, if uh, that is in fact the case, we've got a pretty good uh, 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 set of data that would indicate that Jesus, in fact, was crucified on Friday. Now, those who object to this uh, will point to John chapter 18 and verse 28 that says, uh, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Well, at first glance, it does seem that, uh, you know, whereas Jesus had eaten the Passover the night before, the Jewish leaders had not yet eaten the Passover. They still wanted to be able to eat of it after Jesus was arrested. Well, to put this together with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all basically give the same chronology, uh, we have to remember that the Passover was the first day of the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the concern that these Jewish officials had was not that they would be disqualified from eating the Passover. It's likely they already had eaten the Passover but uh, they didn't want to be ceremonially defiled from the various activities and rituals and sacrifices that would accompany the uh, week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would uh, go after all of that. Uh, You know, again, uh, maybe the best chronology, I think, for Jesus' uh, time, uh, his last days, is in Thursday 
of that week, Nisan 14th, uh, was the Passover itself. The lamb was killed, and Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal in the upper room. Friday was the day of preparation for the Sabbath of that week. And on that day, Jesus is tried and executed, uh, although never convicted. Uh, the Jews continued their uh, celebrations with the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and the offerings that were to be made during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, Friday night, Friday sundown through Saturday sundown was the Sabbath, and then Jesus rose on Sunday. And I said, well, what about the uh, three days and three nights? Well, three days and three nights, Sean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, there's scriptural evidence to suggest that three days and three nights is a Jewish idiom that doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about 72-hour days, right? Right. If we're going to use the Bible's language, then note the culture, the time and setting in which it was written in, and use other uses of that term, I guess three days and three nights in this case, and see if it exclusively refers to three full days, Sabbath down to Sabbath down, right? If that's the case, then we've got a problem. But if, on the other hand, uh, we see examples, in fact, the only other example in Scripture of three days and three nights in the Bible, not referring to three whole days, but on the third day, then the skeptic has a problem. And this would put, of course, the issue of Friday, full day Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, or Thursday, whichever you take your pick. But does it have to be the full three days? That's a misrepresentation of the language. In the book of Esther, chapter 4, notice that when she makes a petition to her cousin Mordecai, she says in verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So he lets her go. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5. Now it happened on the third day. Not after. Right. Not the completion of three days. Not after Sabbath had ceased on the third day. On the third day. Right. So the only other language that we have to use in this setting doesn't have to include a full day. It definitely sets a max point, but it doesn't say that it has to be 100% fulfilled. Yeah. Now, if on the other hand, people are going to say, well, you're being nitpicky with the text coming from the guy who's saying that the Bible is invalid because it includes a fraction of a number, who's the real problem? But if on the other hand, we're going to take a step back, say we're having this discussion among fellow believers, here's what we can do. The Wednesday theory is giving the most possible room for the plainest language. Esther would be a good counteraction to this point and give the opportunity for it to be either him being arrested on Thursday or crucified on Thursday, being arrested on Wednesday. If, on the other hand, you take a strong, hard, traditional Friday crucifixion note, note he's buried into the morning of Friday and then spends basically all day of Saturday, part of Friday, and basically the introduction into Sunday. Well, that is three technical days, most of Friday, some of Sunday, but all of Saturday. If you won't allow that interpretation, then it's best just to give them space. But note that all of the theories don't discount the information we have, which is historically verified, not just by eyewitnesses, but even hostile sources. That is what? Jesus was indeed crucified, and if you died, that means that you did live at some point afterwards. We have Romans, Greeks, and hostile Jews to Jesus verifying he was crucified. The Talmud even mentions him being hung on a tree, so note that point. 
they deliberately did that to shame him according to Deuteronomy's law. And of course, we can also verify the resurrection by not one, not 12, but 500 people at one time. If you mince details about, well, was it Wednesday or Thursday? We remember the resurrection every day, as well as the crucifixion that made that resurrection meaningful. If we want to get into those details, you only need to know about three things. First, what the Passover actually is. Second, where and how three days and three nights is used elsewhere in the Bible. And third, what are the key details of the account? If you say this is totally invalid because they didn't get the days right, that'd be like interviewing someone an eyewitness and said it was daytime and it was a Thursday. Those are very superficial standards to have. Yeah, and and again, I think uh, Josh McDowell was the one that, uh, uh, and Don Stewart both pointed out, uh, that Jewish idiom that any part of a day was considered by the Jews to be a whole day. So if Jesus is crucified on Friday, uh, as uh, the scripture uh, indicates, uh, that would be the part of uh, the better part of a day. If uh, you reckon a day being from sundown or from sunrise to sunrise, as the or sun, I should say, sundown, sundown to, to sundown, sundown, as the Jews did then uh, it pretty much resolves the problem because you've got one full day on Friday for Jesus to be crucified. He is then put into a tomb at sundown on Friday, which would be the part of the second day, uh, going into sundown on Saturday, uh, which would bring you into the third part of the day since he was raised from the dead sometime after sunrise on Sunday. Then you've got your three days and three nights. And speaking of the uh, last week of our Lord's ministry, earthly, that is, uh, he wants to know, this is John, why is Thursday called Moundy Thursday? It's just remembering the Last Supper that was had by Jesus with his disciples, uh, specifically before the time he was arrested. Um, It's usually given that term Moundy because of the idea of being cleansed. That was when he washed the disciples' feet. It's a traditional thing. but Yeah, uh, Moundy actually comes from a Latin word. Uh, that uh, we get our term mandate from, uh, you know, where uh, Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another uh, as I have loved you. And so it's kind of a high flutin way of doing that. I, I remember uh, the first time I heard of uh, uh, Moundy Thursday, I thought it was a uh, riff on an old Mamas and the Papas song. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there are some churches that will celebrate Moundy Thursday and they will, like, say, for instance, have a foot washing ceremony in order to commemorate the fact that it was on that day that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which is uh, a cool thing to do. It's certainly not commanded of us to do as a ritual, but uh, certainly the attitude and the heart behind it is something that uh, embodies that command. All right. Um, Question from Moses. Not not the Moses, a Moses. Uh, We appreciate you joining us. Uh, Who wants to know, is it right to pray with a rosary? If it is, where is it in the Bible? Uh, I'll be blunt, Moses, it's not uh, for the first and second half of the question. When it comes to, is the rosary mentioned in the Bible? There are traditions that try to dance around certain issues with the traditions that have been handed down to you. But of course, that's speaking in the past tense, what the disciples had already told them, not future things that people other than the apostles would tell them. And then of course, it's fallacious to assume, well, the things that they did were of course, already handed down to them by the apostles because no true Christian wouldn't teach the rosary. Well, that's called a no true Scotsman fallacy. If, on the other hand, we were to say, okay, but like, what about the manner? What about the structure? Is it okay to have this sort of, and for those of you who don't know, the tradition is you've got this ring of beads, all of which having a significant 
figure or saint that you are to rub as you pray to remind you as you go down this to recite certain prayers in certain orders and a certain number of times. Uh, this is directly condemned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when speaking of those who pray. Uh, in verse 5, I'll start, it says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you sh have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, here's where we get into the rosary style. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. This is the purpose of the rosary. If I say these right words this number of times, I repeatedly make these statements, somehow God will hear me because it's prescribed by the people who represent him in my life, the priests, the bishops, and so forth. Um, it's not something we encourage. If there's someone in your life who just grew up and that's the kind of structure they appreciate when they pray, I'd give them grace. And saying, well, as long as you take time to talk to God from the heart, then I can really care less, to be blunt, if you also throw in Hail Marys and stuff. She doesn't care either. But if, on the other hand, you're going to say, no, what if someone insists on this, that you're not praying to God unless you do it in the prescribed way of the Roman Universal Church, that's what Catholic means, then we've got a problem. That is cultic, that is unbiblical, that is false. Well, there's uh, some other problems with it. Uh, the second half of the rosary, you were to refer to Mary as the Holy Queen of Heaven. Uh, and uh, that is a title that she has never given within Scripture. Uh, if you ask a Roman Catholic, where is Mary ever referred to in such a way? They'll say, well, she's not, but uh, that is uh, our uh, tradition. Uh, you know, it, it also uh, assigns Mary a task that uh, we don't see anyone uh, aside from Jesus being given. That is to be uh, not just uh, uh, an intermediary uh, in First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Uh, we're told, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, when we, when Roman Catholics will uh, include the Hail Holy Queen portion of the Rosary Prayer, they call Mary our most gracious advocate. Well, the Bible tells us that there is one advocate uh, that we have before the Father, and that is Jesus himself. Um, the idea of praying to Mary and not to God, uh, to me, uh, some people say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like asking your friends to pray for you as well. But uh, I think this elevates it uh, into something that's very different than me just saying, hey, Sean, could you pray for me today? Uh, you know, when someone says, you know, I want the saints or I want uh, Mary to be praying for me, uh, they are essentially, you know, and kind of sadly taking a step back because we are told, for instance, that Jesus continually intercedes for us. And if you can go directly to Jesus, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 33, uh, we are told, uh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not along with him freely give us all things? Who is he who condemns? It is God who justifies. Uh, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is Christ Jesus who died, furthermore is risen, who is seated at the right hand of God, who will also make intercession for us. So, you know, when uh, a person, you know, prays the rosary and that's the background that they come from and so on, um, you know, I, you know, try not to be overly critical about it. Uh, but if they ask me, is this biblical? It's not. 
Um, Mary's never referred to in Scripture as the Holy Queen. Uh, We are never instructed in Scripture to pray for those who've left this earth and gone uh, beyond us uh, to uh, intercede before the Father uh, for us. And as you mentioned, the idea of uh, repeating prayers, because people think they'll be heard for their many words, uh, that's problematic as well. Uh, My step-grandfather, who was a devout Roman Catholic, passed away and I went to the Requiem Mass. By they, the way, they no had, question of his salvation because he was Roman Catholic, but here's the point. Well, yeah, I went, that was the farthest thing from my mind. But at his Requiem Mass, uh, the priest said that if we prayed the rosary, we could actually shorten uh, my step-grandfather's uh, time in purgatory uh, and that we could really minister to him by doing these sort of things. Well, again, uh, seemed to be a very competent assertion at that time, but there's no scriptural background for it. The, the thing that uh, we would say is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, if I want to be adequate, equipped for every good work, I don't look to church tradition. I don't look to the opinions of others. I look to the word of God. And I need to ask myself, is my approach to prayer something that comes out of God's word, or is my approach to prayer something I've learned, and I'm just trying to get God's word to somehow go along with it? The difference there is really crucial. All right. Thank you for the question. Um, Here's a fun one from Monica, who wants to know, are the 144,000 evangelists during the seven years of the tribulation? She believes they are, and cites Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Uh, Keep going to verse 14. That will be the short answer. As far as the long, uh, Peter Martin and I will be discussing this in some detail tonight in our local study on going Wednesday nights through the book of Revelation. But to condense uh, four pages of notes into uh, two minutes, uh, let me just overview the reasons why I clarify this real quick. I believe that the 144,000 will be sharing the gospel during the first half of the tribulation, that their ministry will be cut off during the abomination that causes desolation detailed for us in Revelation 13, Matthew 24, and Daniel 9. Uh, Also note as well, when we're talking about the uh, purpose of the ministry of the 144,000, this final revival is clarified to be taking place when they're first mentioned, of course, verses 5 through 8 mention the 144,000 by tribe and name. We right. believe they're literal Jews. Right. Then it says in verse 9, as you said, Monica, after these things, what things? The 144,000 being sealed things. I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, not just Jews, right. tribes, peoples, tongues, and language, standing before the throne. This has been clarified in chapters 4 and 5 to be heaven. But note this point. Uh, they are worshiping God specifically. Then it says in verse uh, 14 when he's john's asked who are these and he says i just i just got here you know he says in verse 14 these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they washed their blood uh, their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb therefore they are before the throne of god and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them then goes on to note the state of heaven uh noting this point as well 
when we clarify the first half of the tribulation as the limit to their ministry, there's two passages you need to keep in mind, Revelation chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 notes that after the rise of the Antichrist passage, chapter 13, and all that that entails, we're given a basically spiritized view of what's going on at this halfway point where we're transitioning into the Great Tribulation. Chapter 11 notes that the beast who rises out of the bottomless pit will rise up and kill them after 42 months. That's three and a half years, right. not seven. Uh, also note as well the chapter 14 after the Antichrist's ministry is explained in detail. I say ministry with quotations. Uh, we're talking about the emphasis on the fact the 144,000 are now in heaven. Right. <laughs> and that meant that something went bad on earth specifically to them. Now, yeah. obviously, those who are ministered to by their evangelism will be given provision for that. We'll talk about that more if you'd like. But um, those are some of the details that we keep kind of to make sure all the puzzle pieces fit just right. I believe, yes, during the tribulation, because of Revelation chapter uh, 7 and verse 14, those who come out of their ministry, why do I think it's their ministry? Because it directly <laughs> follows through in a conversation in which they're introduced. Uh, later in the chapter, we are noting that after the sixth trumpet judgment. There's this lengthy description of the spiritual phenomena going on at this time in history and the impact it will have on the earth. And after all of those details are given, the 144,000 are suddenly in heaven. I don't believe they were raptured. I believe they were killed. Also note as well, the two witnesses, the ones who I believe led them to salvation in the first place, we'll talk about that in detail tonight, also were killed but resurrected in the sight of them all after three and a half days. And that marks the um, sixth trumpet judgments conclusion so noting that point as well this is revelation chapter 11 so yeah you're you're right on the money monica as far as the um, timing i guess uh, dispensationally yeah. of the ministry of the 144,000. but i would clarify first half not second half god will give that to angels because you can't shoot her tell angels to shut up. They're going to keep talking. <laughs> They're notoriously uh, resistant to both. <laughs> but uh, that point being made, that's that would be how I'd handle that. Thank you for the question. Um, Here's an interesting uh, one yeah. uh, from Dwayne uh, on our uh, YouTube site. Uh, is it a sin to get political? I know it's not, uh, but are, what are we supposed to do about the people who say that it is? Uh, no, it's not uh, sinful. The problem is the way people go out conversing about those things can be yes. less than Christ. Now, Christ-like. now first, first step in this, is it a sin to be political? Well, I'm sure people like Nehemiah, who served in a political position, or Daniel, who served in a secular political position, would be very... Uh, I'm not just talking about uh, the, the kings of Israel and so forth, but... Uh, you know, uh, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. That meant he was one of his closest associates and advisors, uh, the guy he trusted with his own life. Daniel uh, rose up to positions of prominence in uh, two different administrations, Babylonian and uh, Medo-Persian. Yeah, four generations, two different empires. Yeah, so, uh, you know, once again, God used uh, a guy like Daniel to oversee the political affairs of his people. Uh, one might even say that he used a uh, Jewish woman by the name of Esther in a very political way to save the lives of uh, the Jewish nation when they were in uh, the uh, Medo-Persian uh, Empire's sway. So is it wrong to be involved with politics? No, absolutely not. God uses good people, uh, and by good I mean having a genuine relationship with him, 
in uh, powerful ways in uh, in political areas. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting how when uh, the uh, soldiers came to John the Baptist to be baptized, never once did John say to any of them, uh, give up your soldiering. Uh, it's just mean and it's secular and you need to spend more time in prayer. No, he just said, um, don't extort money from people and be content with your pay. <laughs> that, that was all the advice that he had for them. In fact, in the book of uh, Romans chapter 13, we are told that uh, government is a gift from God and uh, the people who enforce the rules of government are a minister from God. They don't bear the sword in vain. So there's nothing wrong with being in a political place. Now, when we have political opinions, however, that's where things can get uh, kind of dicey. And, uh, you know, this is, this is what I've learned over the years. You never hear me preaching politics at Calvary Christian Fellowship, and there's a reason for that. Uh, although there are a number of issues politically that I feel passionately about, the only political issues you'll ever hear me speak to at Calvary Christian Fellowship are, first of all, the pro-life issue, because I believe the Scripture is absolutely explicit about uh, God's desire for us to stand up for the least and the, the uh, most innocent and vulnerable, uh, and it's a matter of life and death. The other thing is uh, the support of Israel. Now, again, it doesn't mean that I don't have very passionate positions on other political issues, but here's the deal. I am not here to change people's minds politically. I'm here to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which can change their hearts eternally. Uh, I remember Pastor Chuck Smith uh, sitting down with him and talking about that very issue. And uh, he said, you know, the, the thing that I've discovered is, is if I take a position on a non-biblical issue, then half of the audience is going to agree with me and half is probably going to disagree with me. And that half that disagree with me are probably not going to listen to anything further I have to say about scriptural things because they disagree with me on a secular issue. So, you know, for me, staying in your lane is really, really important. Okay. Um, if we didn't get your question, feel free to email them to us. We look forward to talking to you all again tomorrow. And God bless you and have a good Monday Thursday. <laughs> You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.